Now, I apologize in advance for starting this segment with yet more statistics, but the statistics often tell a big story. In 2021, 12% of Americans said they had no close friends. 12% of Americans said they had no close friends. That's up from 3% in 1990. Perhaps for some that's a choice, but for many, it is likely not. Instead, it leaves them isolated and alone. And according to experts, it is a vicious circle. The lonelier you are, the more your perception of how others perceive you is impacted and your ability to make friends suffers. It all predates the pandemic, even though no doubt the pandemic made things worse. It's been called an epidemic of loneliness, bad for your physical and mental health at the very least. Here's Amy Banks of the International Center for Growth in Connection. When we're isolated and have that feeling that we're being left out, um, we have an alarm that goes off that causes us to have pain. So the pain is, is a marker of that distress. People that are lonely are in really great pain, and it's every bit as real as the pain of a physical injury or illness. So what can be done? How do you build or maintain lasting friendships? How do you connect with new people or deepen existing relationships? Joining me now is Marissa G. Franco, a psychology PhD speaker and author of the New York Times bestselling Platonic, How the Science of Attachment Can Help You Make and Keep Friends. Marissa G. Franco, thank you for your time. Thank you so much. I'm happy to be talking to you, Ben. I guess to start at the beginning, loneliness. Uh, we hear a lot about it, but I think we understand more and more now that in many ways, loneliness is 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 can be medically, uh, mentally, and in many different ways, very destructive to us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the, the commonly cited statistic is it's as toxic as smoking 15 cigarettes a day. Um, you know, we talk about how diet and exercise affect our longevity and there's so, so much public health movement around those things, but how strong your social network is actually affects how long you live more so than your diet and how much you exercise. Why is it then, and this is a very broad question, but in general terms, why is it then that adults seem to have so much trouble? Some adults, not all, but many adults have a hard time keeping and making new friends. The problem is that when we're kids, we can form friendships more organically because uh, what sociologist Rebecca G. Adams calls is the ingredients for friendships happening organically, repeated unplanned interaction and shared vulnerability. Whereas when we're adults, we don't really inhabit those settings anymore. Like maybe we see people in a repeated way at work, but we're not necessarily vulnerable with them. And so what that means is that if you rely on your template from children, from when you were a kid, you might assume, oh, friendship should happen organically, right? But it doesn't. It doesn't happen that way in adulthood. And in fact, research finds that people that think that friendship happens based on luck are lonelier five years later, whereas those that see it happening based on effort are less lonely five years later. Because it feels like when watching children, every moment is an opportunity for friendship when you're a child, right? It doesn't matter exactly. where you are, what you're doing. It is an opportunity to make a friend. And as adults, we start to compartmentalize and then that changes. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, one of kids' secrets is that they don't have as much baggage around being rejected yet, right? And And that, I think, is fundamentally one of the biggest barriers that I see to making friends. People are so afraid of rejection there's a theory called risk regulation theory that argues we decide how much to invest in a relationship based on our view of how likely we are to get rejected. 
So if you're always thinking you'll be rejected, you're not going to invest in your relationships at all. And then it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy because as you're starting out to say, what really matters as an adult when it comes to friendship is effort, right? Exactly. And here's the truth, Ben. People are less likely to reject us than we think. Um, This is based off of research where strangers were interacting and then asked, how much do you like the other person? And when people predicted, how much does the other person like you? They underestimated how like they were. And the more self-critical people were, the more pronounced this underestimation was. So fundamentally, people are less likely to reject you than you think they are. But the problem is that we're so afraid of rejection, we never actually test this assumption and use it to correct our thinking about this. You pointed out, and the, and the title of your book says it all, that we often place such an importance on romantic uh, connections and, and reject, or not reject, but neglect to some extent friendships, uh, but that platonic relationships are as important, if not more important in some senses than romantic ones. Absolutely. Yes. Yes. I I started the book saying that these views on romantic relationships being the only form of love that matters or defines my worth as a woman, how that really impacted me. And I realized how wrong that was, especially when I had all these loving friends around me and I didn't count that as love, but it does also hurt people in romantic relationships to just go to one person for support. You know, the research finds that when you go to different people to support you through different emotions, you experience greater well-being. that if you make a friend, not only are you less depressed, but your spouse becomes less depressed that when you're in conflict with your spouse, it affects your release of the stress hormone cortisol, but not if you have quality connection outside the marriage. So friendship, whether you're single or you're married, I think, you know, what I also argue is that friendship is required to be in a healthy marriage as well. And you've pointed out that for men, it can often be difficult and they often come to rely on their partners a lot more for friendships. And that leaves them particularly isolated. Absolutely. You know, I I realized that men's scripts for friendships tend to be a lot more limited than women's are. And and part of that is because of something called homo hysteria, which is men's fear of being perceived as gay. So all of these behaviors that are required to create friendship and platonic intimacy, like reaching out or being vulnerable or sharing that, telling someone how great you think they are, right? Like men feel more pressure to avoid doing these things for fear that it could affect how people perceive their sexual orientation or that they will experience shame from it. Whereas women, um, I don't think experience homo hysteria to the same degree and feel a lot more freer to express all these intimate behaviors in their friendships. Yeah, I, I guess I guess men struggle with just even the minor intimacy that comes with being with having to reach out to someone to try to strike up a friendship. Yeah, Ben, I had someone that I interviewed for my book say, oh, I can't reach out to him. He might think I'm like interested in him. And I was just thinking, but then how are you going to make a friend if you can't reach out to anybody? Tell me though about social media, because I feel like social media has played a big part in, in, you know, it's not bad, but it does allow us to isolate and not make an effort because we feel like we're connecting in some way, but it doesn't feel like it brings you the same level of satisfaction as true friendship. Absolutely. And and the research on social media is, is very complex. And what it finds is that how social media impacts our level of connection depends on how we use it. Those people that use it to replace in-person connection every day, they're, you know, swiping through TikTok videos rather than making friends in real life. They tend to be a lot more lonely. Whereas those that use it to facilitate in-person connections, to coordinate plans and 
reach out on Instagram to say we should hang out. It's been a while. They're actually less lonely than people that aren't on social media. So it really depends on how we use it. But unfortunately, most of us use it in ways that foster more disconnection. We're just scrolling, we're just lurking for hours at a time. And that fundamentally is negatively impacting our mental health and our level of connectedness. Our guest this half hour is Marissa G. Franco. She's a psychology PhD, a speaker and author of the New York Times bestseller, Platonic, How the Science of Attachment Can Help You Make and Keep Friends. We're talking about the very important issue of making and keeping friends these days. Always important, but it feels more important these days as we've, uh, after we've emerged from two years of relative isolation, not for all of us, but at least for some. Um, there are lots of ways you can go about making friends. Marissa, I know that some are successful and some aren't, but I guess the importance is is to put yourself out there and to make sure you're in, in environments, as we're talking about children later, where you have opportunities to make friends. So it's not going to a play by yourself. It's going to a place where you can interact with other people. Yeah, absolutely. Places that are high in what's I, what I call social permission, which means permission to talk to someone that you didn't come come in with, right? And that's like social clubs or classes that you might take with other people versus the movie theater or the play that you're sitting at alone. Uh, so that's really important. I the mindset shift that I, that I recommend to people is you have to assume people like you because when researchers told people to make this assumption, they became warmer, friendlier, more open, even when that wasn't necessarily true. So fundamentally it helps us be brave enough to initiate connections with other people. And you can also, you know, reach out to people that you've knew that you've discussed that you um, want to reconnect with, right? These people from your past, because the most common reason friendship fizzles is because we've fallen out of touch, not because there was any conflict or tension. So reaching out to those people from your past to say, oh, hey, I was just thinking about you wanted to check in and see how you're doing. And you could take it from there to be like, oh, I'd actually love to find a time for us to reconnect because there's actually a study that found that when you text people to reconnect, they actually appreciate it more than you think they do. And the more... Um, actually, the the less connected you were originally, the more that they appreciate it. Wow. I mean, it makes sense to go back to people who you were friends with, who maybe you moved to different cities or they moved away or things have changed. It makes sense to go back to those people because you already know them, right? So you don't have to uh, forge new contacts with new people, although that can be fun as well. Um, you, you've said that that people do something called covert avoidance, even when they're out there trying to make friends. And I thought that was a really interesting concept. Yeah. So what I recommend when you're making friends is to show up to something that's repeated over time, just like what I talked about with friends happen organically, if it's repeated interaction and shared vulnerability. So so that's like taking anything you're interested in and doing it in community, a walking group, a hiking club, a language class, a book club, a meditation class, right? But the thing is, you don't just have to show up you also have to overcome covert avoidance, which is our tendency to show up physically and check out mentally. We're on our phone. We are, you know, pretending to watch the game. We're walking off alone. We're talking to the one person we already know. You have to be able to engage with people and say, you know, hey, my name is Marissa. How long have you been coming to this? How have you been enjoying it? You have to show interest in other people because fundamentally, according to the theory of inferred attraction, people like people that they think like them. So being really good at creating connections is about showing people in your life that you that you like them. Going through this whole process um, of writing this book, what what stood out to you the moment? What did you learn that you didn't think you that you thought you might know a lot about going in, but realized that maybe there was some surprises there for you? I always find that really interesting for something like an ex what you went through because it's really an idea. You're sort of going through a journey for yourself, 
as well as writing something. And I was wondering what you may have learned that surprised you in writing Platonic. Yeah, Ben, so many things. Every chapter, I'm like, I screwed this up, <laughs> y'all. <laughs> um, we could all improve, myself included. One one big lesson I learned was that um, I was always a conflict avoider in friendship. I would try to pull away and get over it on my own. And when I read the study that found that open empathic conflict actually is linked to deeper intimacy, I realized that, oh, I'm actually harming and sabotaging my friendships when I try to get over it on my own, which basically looks like me then withdrawing from the friendship, right? And that giving, not bringing up the conflict was almost like me seeing a friend as guilty before I gave them a trial, right? Because there were things that I was angry about that I had misperceived. I I thought a friend had never responded to this email, but they actually had, and I had missed Mm -hmm. it, right? Um, so I realized the potential for conflict to actually create more intimacy and more closeness. And I started actually addressing problems with my friends. Human relationships are so complicated, aren't they? I mean, that, that therein lies the basis of this all. They are complicated, you know, they are simply are very simple and very complicated all at once, especially when it comes to misperceptions or misconceptions about the way things have happened and so on. So you're right, I suppose. Uh, being open about it and talking about it probably helps always. Yeah, absolutely. It's like, I'm invested enough in you to want to bring this up so we can heal instead of pulling away. One thing that you brought up as well that I thought was, um, was, was very telling was that loneliness actually alters how you see the world, that Mm -hmm. it changes the way you see the world. So it becomes self-perpetuating and getting out of that mindset is probably the most important first step. Yeah. Yeah. It's not just a feeling. It's a, it's a way of viewing the world. And we, we know that when we were lonely, when we were sort of evolving, you were alone on the Savannah, you were separated from your tribe. You were in danger. You had to be on hyper alert for any threats that came your way. Unfortunately, this is still our mind on loneliness. Lonely people are more likely to report that people are rejecting them even when they're not. They report not liking humanity. They report not liking their roommate as much, not after they interact with someone, they don't like that person as much. They are more hostile in reaction to perceived slights, right? So they're basically in this place of you know, self-protection where they both want to connect with someone, but they also want to withdraw from people. Cause the thought is if I try to connect with people, I'm going to be rejected and harmed. So fundamentally, if the choice is between connection and harm, um, you know, being alone and being safe or being connected and being unsafe, right. Then I'm going to choose to be alone. I'm going to sort of choose to be lonely. So our brain plays all of these tricks on us that unfortunately makes it very hard to come out of chronic loneliness. And actually the interventions that have been most successful with loneliness have actually been about changing the way people think when they're lonely. So when you're lonely, you can be instructed to still, think that other people like you and think that other people value you and do nice things for other people instead of going into this defensive self-protective mode. It feels like at least we've recognized that this is a problem, something that we didn't talk. I mean, I don't remember talking about this growing up. I mean, it feels like it's something relatively new, but we now recognize perhaps late and perhaps it seems ridiculous that we didn't recognize it earlier, but the value of friendship. Yeah. And it is sad. I think that it's taken us this long for, because it's only become so much more extreme. Like loneliness has been increasing since the fifties in 2012, it started to spike because that was around when the smartphone became widely used. So 
And I, I think, you know, I, can't, I won't go into the research here, but really to have a healthy society, we need to be able to, to trust others, which friendship facilitates, right? There's so many ways we have to trust our, our government, for example, yeah. um, and trust our neighbors, right, for society to function. So a disconnected society is not going to be a healthy society. So it's just important from so many levels, I think, from the policy level to the individual level that we focus on allowing people to foster greater connection. Marissa G. Franco, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me.